welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And together we are rereading and discussing and scratching our heads over the Aubrey Matry novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, we're pretty well into Letter of Mark now. Can you catch us up with where we got to last time and where we might be headed to this week? Be happy to, Ian. Yeah, in chapter three last week, the surprise survived that, you know, Jack's prayed for blow and took the Spartan's consort, the Merlin, as a prize. Padine slipped deeper into his laudanum addiction. The surprise's crew, as they as they chased after some working from some intelligence they'd gotten from the Merlin's crew, as they chased after the Spartan, they worked day and night, and they disguised themselves as the Azul, but the wind delayed them. And it, and it looked like, you know, they weren't going to make it. Maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. And finally, after arriving late, they encounter the Spartan and the Azul battling. And uh, uh, they actually managed to take both, although the Azul sinks immediately thereafter. Yeah. So Jack's delighted by the way that the crew work together and, and without the need for naval discipline, even though they realized that it was probably a lost cause. So we left our heroes as they were headed to attempt to lure this whole string of Spartans' prizes out of another harbor and to do that before the USS Constitution arrived. So we can't wait mm. to get back to that. And this time, Laudanum continues to play a key role. Stephen visits Mrs. Broad and Sir Joseph Blaine back in London. Jack spends time with his family at Ashgrove Cottage, and there's a new mission for surprise with big implications for Jack on the horizon. Ooh, okay, well, let's get into it. We start the chapter, Mike, with Stephen and Nathaniel Martin buying medical supplies at the warehouse of the of the druggist, Mr. Cooper. And right away, I'm going like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Flip back, two less than two pages ago, we were off of fail in the Azores, plotting to take this string of prizes out from under the nose of the USS Constitution. And now we're at a pharmacist in London. And I'm asking myself, what happened? And I think, of course, well, we're reading Patrick O'Brien and we're going to have to wait until O'Brien decides in his own good time to let us hear, no doubt, secondhand how this action has played out. But from the fact that Stephen and Martin are ashore and in London, we can guess that the surprise probably wasn't captured or defeated. <sighs> so they're in this pharmacist and Stephen decides not to purchase laudanum since, as he mentions, bragging, I think, to Nathaniel Martin, he has 15,000 ordinary hospital doses worth of laudanum aboard the ship. And he goes on to remind Martin, maybe a little bit smugly here, Mike, that you should never be without it. And he goes on to wander aloud why he sees that its effects have diminished so much. He praises up the tincture that's made by this pharmacist. Cooper says it's made with brandy, not with raw alcohol. At Stephen's moderate dose, what he calls his moderate dose of a thousand drops, he still hasn't been able to get to sleep. And we get this little double take sort of hinted at by Martin, who knows that the usual dose is 25 drops and the dose prescribed to Padine is 60 drops. So Stephen's moderate dose of a thousand drops sounds... Hmm, horrifying, really. And Martin's clearly pretty horrified. And Mike, it, it's been a while since we mentioned Chekhov's gun, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. Chekhov's laudanum here, I think. 
What do you yeah, think? I think so. We now keep seeing this uh, gun, the laudanum, in every act. It's got to be fired at some point here. Yeah. Oh. Stephen returns back to his club, Blacks, you know, from this druggist in London, and, and he leaves a parcel there and asks him to remind him to make sure he takes that with him to the evening meeting with Sir Joseph Blaine, who is now, he says, the, the true head of naval intelligence again. And he's got a little extra time, so he goes to visit Mrs. Broad at the Rebuilding Grapes. Now, he, he walks in, and she's obviously not there, but he hears her upstairs just absolutely haranguing two men who are, are clearly behind schedule getting new window glass installed. And, and O'Brien writes, railing in women always made him uneasy, talking about Stephen. And now he stood there with his hands behind his back, his head bowed, and an unhappy expression on his face. It also had much the same effect on the two glaciers who came down the stairs directing submissive words to the torrent behind them and above them. Yes, ma'am. Certainly, ma'am. Directly, ma'am, with, without fail. In the doorway, they squared their paper hats on their heads, exchanged a haggard look, and hurried silently away. Now, with this force of nature, Mrs. Broad you know, comes rumbling down the, the stairs, talking to herself, wicked idle dogs, radicals, Jacob the Piecrest, villains. And and she comes into the you know, the room where Stephen is seeing somebody there, she says, no, sir, you can't be served. The house ain't open yet, nor ever will it be with those vicious monsters. And then she she catches herself. Oh, Lord, it's the doctor. God love you, sir. Pray, take a seat. And, you know, like immediately she's transformed to that good humored face beaming out like the sun coming out from behind the dark purple cloud, O'Brien writes. <laughs> <laughs> So, Mike, it's, it's lovely to see and hear Mrs. Broad again. It's lovely to peek back into the world of Stephen and women, and I think that's going to be important in this episode. And this was very relatable for me. Um, Joy, uh, Mrs. Lubber, as the world might call her, has just lately been tearing off a strip off of our glazing supply. <laughs> so this was very, very relatable. She has, how can I put it? She is that force of nature. She can induce humility in tradesmen. <laughs> Nice, and uh, I've got to say, I'm very lucky to be <laughs> very lucky to be sharing my life with her. If it wasn't for her being able to hold up errant tradesmen, I think I'd still be living in a crumbling hovel with cracked plaster and peeling paint and wonky door frames and leaking windows these three decades and more. So good for her. So Mrs. Broad is excited to have Stephen back, and she remarks to our great joy on the success of the surprise and asks after the dear captain and hopes no one got hurt. So, <laughs> channeling the spirit of the reader here, Mrs. Broad is basically saying, do you think we could have a morsel of exposition, maybe just a little bit at all? But not a bit of it. They go straight into drinking the health of the grapes, and Mrs. Broad goes for a different line of exposition. She asks very gently if there's any news from the north. And, Mike, we learn what she means exactly by news from the north. She and Diana had worked together to, as O'Brien writes, keep Stephen healthy properly fed, dressed in clean linen, and well-brushed clothes suitable to his station. And, and they become really good friends in what O'Brien calls this largely unsuccessful campaign. And she knew that Diana had not gone into the North for her health. Stephen tells her that he actually may be headed up North soon. And Mrs. Broad pulls out a Swedish doll that Diana had sent her 
along with a note asking her to please pick up this waterproof boat cloak that Diana had ordered for Stephen right before she left and and now should be ready Mm -hmm. to pick up. Now, interestingly, Stephen thinks to himself how much wiser he would have been to make a clean break with Diana instead of walking about with her absurd great diamond in his pocket like a talisman and his whole spirit jerking at the sound of her name. O'Brien writes, Stephen had amputated many a limb in the past and not only literally. So, wow. boy, I can't help but react yeah. to these you know, ricocheting emotions in Stephen. You know, really want to see her? Should I see her? Gosh, you know, now with this kind of, uh, you know, amputating a limb and, and putting myself into here, I, I can only uh, empathize with the fears of somebody contemplating a repeated rejection, perhaps. Oh, my gosh. I mean, Mike, we're, we're right back in the territory of HMS Surprise here. And right. He can't stop exposing himself to this kind of ongoing torture. Oh, poor fella. Anyway, what we haven't heard very much about yet is Diana's side of her story and where she's at. So it kind of raises those questions in my mind as well. Stephen is glad, meanwhile, to hear that his rooms will be ready as soon as the windows are in and makes arrangements for Padine to stay in a finished room at the Grapes after he has his tooth surgery the next day. And Stephen, again, slightly smug about the benign effects of laudanum, says Padine is as biddable as a lamb and perfectly sober. Mm. Yeah, okay, let's see. So off Stephen goes to make his way through the crowded streets. He goes back to Black's. He goes on to see Sir Joseph in his place in Shepherd Market. Joseph Blaine's delighted to see him until Stephen asks for news of Ray and Ledwood. And another bit of backwards exposition, we learn that Ray and Ledwood were spotted in Paris and that they had escaped to Paris due to the stupidity of some of the intelligence services and the likelihood as very directly hinted at by Blaine, that there's at least one highly placed colleague and protector in the administration. And yet further backwards exposition, we learned that matters have been set to rights now in the world of naval intelligence. Blaine is securely installed as the head of naval intelligence. He has to rebuild his organization. He lacks confidence in some of what he calls his partners and correspondents and won't propose, therefore, any continental missions, any missions in Europe for Stephen. So therefore, it's worth focusing on this South American mission, which is more valuable to their interests anyway. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. We don't want Stephen, if, if the network's a little suspect, we don't want him tra- mm-hmm. you know, traveling over there, especially with Ray and Latward still on his heels here. Well, right. Stephen asked Blaine about Jack's possible reinstatement. They've been talking about Jack's wonderful success here recently with the Spartan. And Blaine says that the formal process really can't go forward until the court condemns Ray and Ledward and that Jack is, you know, in Blaine's word, pardoned for what he never did. You know, Blaine does say that there's some informal processes that are proceeding. And and some of those supporters of Jack are, are very helpful, but others like the Duke and some Whiggish admirals, their influence may actually work against Jack. But the good news is the public backs Jack. They think that he's been terribly ill-used and they've really been rejoicing over his recent success. And, and Stephen kind of pushes a little further. He asks if this, you know, what Blaine's called this striking success might help change the official view. And Blaine, like a good friend, is very direct. Oh, dear me, no, he says. <laughs> For the official mind, yeah. Successful privateering is of no national, no royal naval consequence. Now, 
There's been a hideous blunder. Everyone knows it. And when the present generation of officials has passed away in perhaps 20 years, and of course the present ministry, it's possible that some gesture may be made. But at present, Ray cannot be brought to trial, and it would be extremely embarrassing to the ministry if it could, Blaine adds. And he says this kind of whole series of scandals that have been all ripped up so that right now the blame cannot be shifted. And the only official face-saving can be done by what Blaine calls an action of obviously national importance that would justify a royal pardon, revision, or restoration. And I think Stephen looks a little puzzled here, and Blaine explains that if Jack battled a French or an American Navy ship of equal or superior force and took it or was seriously wounded, you know, in an honorable way, or both, he might be reinstated in a year or two. And Blaine kind of adds, instead of in the next coronation or two, meaning a couple of, you know, monarchs down the line. So, oh, Um, which, by the way, is about as long as it took for Thomas Cochrane to get back on the Navy list. But hey, hope we've got we've got to have hope for Jack. Now, Mike, this is we've now got a bit of a quest, what you might call a traditional storytelling quest. We, we already had this interesting question raised at the beginning of the book. You know, is Jack going to wallow in his depression or is he going to get busy with his ship? And now we've got the quest for him to seek, which is can he go and find his way into an action with a French or American national ship? The question is, though, this is O'Brien. Is he going to get that payoff in this chapter or in this book or several books from now? Who knows? Right. And, and when, if he does, will we ever find out about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, is, it, is it going to be told in the third person you know, four, four weeks afterwards? Right. Anyhow, Bl- Blaine changes the subject a little bit, and that gives us a bit of the exposition that we're looking for. Here it comes, Mike. He says, well, Jack must now be one of the wealthiest sailors afloat with these seven, count them, seven recent prizes and the West Indies merchant's uh, gift of a service of plate. Stephen adds that the Court of Appeal had also just decided a big case in Jack's favour. So, Mike, quite a lot has happened since the end of the last chapter and the beginning of this one. Blaine is back in the intelligence. Uh, Stephen and Martin are back in London. Paddy is getting his tooth fixed. And Jack is out of his lawsuit. And he's rich from all these prizes. Ha! Huh. So now we have to ask the question, how? Yeah, and, and I love it. Blaine asked exactly that question. He, like, he's just really curious how in the world they ever enticed the Spartans' prizes to come out of Horda, to come out of that you know, kind of narrow harbor that they were in. And Stephen says that he had interrogated the Spartans' yeoman of signals and, and made him a big offer. You know, if he right. can tell him that, he can have his freedom. Or if he doesn't, he may suffer the consequences. And the yeoman kind of uh, smiles and says, well, given given what the signal is, I'm, I'm happy to make that deal. You know, it's the blue Peter and a gun. So that sounds like, oh, that's as easy as, as all get out there. You know, you just put up the blue Peter, you put a, you know, you sound a gun. However, once these ships had all come out, they had to take them one by one without letting the other prizes know and they stretched themselves really thin because they had to put a prize crew on each ship and barely had enough men left over to sail the ships and guard a lot of angry prisoners around here. Mm. Two of the prizes, Stephen explains, had to be towed. And they had to do all of this while you know, trying to get the heck out of the way before the Constitution came up, you know, kind of at any minute. So 
Stephen then turns and presents Blaine with a gift from Jack. It's the Spartan's logbook, which apparently has a lot of intelligence about French and American agents. And to go along with it, Stephen says, and here's my notes from all the prisoners I interrogated. Also, some great intelligence for Blaine here. Yeah. And there's a nice note at the end of this conversation as well, as Stephen notices the kind of comfort what he calls the comfortable, settled elegance of Blaine's place. And he maybe he's a bit jealous of this kind of settled, rooted domestic existence. And maybe that's colliding in his head with all his anxieties about his marriage and Diana and stuff. Yeah, it was, you know, it's kind of funny to, to think about Stephen who, you know, wipes his hands on his wig and <laughs> walks out with the same shirt on uh, to kind of look around and go, gosh, what a wonderful room. How would I put together such a wonderful room? Doesn't sound like the Stephen Matron we know. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, I think Stephen's a bit off-center in this whole chapter, and it's going to be interesting to see how that develops. Um, We go back to the subject of Jack and his pocketbook, though. Blaine hopes that with all of his riches, Jack is still going to be willing to undertake this mission to South America. And Stephen reassures him that Jack is committed um, he would never live happily on shore until he got restored to the Navy list. And Stephen says, even Nathaniel Martin, who has his own version of a fortune, is also committed to this mission. And we get this little conversation about what constitutes a fortune. Stephen says, in the case of Martin, enough to generate £225 a year when invested. And by the way, Mike, there's, there's going to be this whole conversation, I think, over, over the next two or three books about Nathaniel Martin and what he regards as an adequate sufficiency and where he might get it from. But this is the first time it's been mentioned that what Nathaniel Martin had hoped for and what he's got now is £225 a year. Blaine thinks that that's much better than most clergy can expect, and it's not a bad return for a fortnight's privateering. Bless him, he says. At this rate, he'll soon become an archbishop. And... Mike, just like me here, Stephen didn't understand at first, and Blaine goes on to explain the story of a Dr. Blackburn, Archbishop of York, who had been a buccaneer on the Spanish main. Now, Mike, the Archbishop of York is the second most senior job in the Church of England after the Archbishop of Canterbury. There have been Archbishops of York since 627 AD, since the Saxon times. Wow. So this is a very venerable position. One of them was a saint. So surely this Dr. Blackburn must have been pretty pretty holy, right? Pretty pious sort of dude, was he? Well, you would sure think so. But apparently this, you know, Dr. Lancelot Blackburn, he, he did study at Oxford. He, you know, kind of got his, uh, went up through his theological education, but he spent part of his time in Nevis. There's a popular story that recounts that he spent three years sailing with buccaneers and, and it changes, you know, in some he's the chaplain, some he's the pirate himself. There is a record in 1681 of him being paid 20 pounds, that's uh, north of 3,000 pounds today, by Charles II for secret services during this time. And and he rises, to your point, he he becomes a full-pledged member of the Privy Council, but his career is always controversial. Rumors, for example, that he had secretly married George I to his mistress, and the Dictionary of National Biography mentions, and I'll quote them, his reputation for carnality, the laxity of his moral precepts. Ooh. And then, a, you know, another reference says his behavior was seldom of a standard to be expected of an archbishop. 
In many respects, his behavior was seldom of a standard to be expected of a pirate. So quite a a colorful guy. I (laughs) love it. I love it. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a pretty good Easter egg. (laughs) Right. So the piratical, carnal, morally lax Archbishop of York is the person that we had in our minds when we got that reference. So they turn back now, Stephen and Sir Joseph Blaine, to a conversation about Duhamel. And over over wine after dinner, they talk about how much they regretted his death. And Stephen tells Blaine how Duhamel had returned the Blue Peter diamond. And Blaine suggests that the stone ought to be in a bank vault and not Stephen's pocket. And I, I, I love this slight dig that Sir Joseph Blaine has to Stephen about his unworldliness. And we're going to hear more about that in a second because the um, the gossip goes on here. Stephen asks, meanwhile, to extend the surprises impressment exemption to cover a trip to Sweden because he wants to return it to Diana. Blaine's happy to arrange for the document to be extended, but Stephen asks very delicately if Blaine's heard anything from Sweden. Blaine says, I've heard nothing officially. As a social person, I've heard various rumours that she left with Yagiello because of Stephen's infidelity. Uh, from better sources, he's heard that Yagiello is a good man in intelligence terms, that he's a supporter of England's alliance with Sweden, is about to be married to a young Swedish lady, and that relations between Mrs. Maturin and Yagiello were never what they had been rumoured to be. Blaine also believes that Diana is currently far from rich. And Mike, I don't know whether to be excited or kind of cringe on Stephen's behalf at this opening up of another glimmer of hope that he could restore his relationship with Diana. Yagiello is marrying a young Swedish lady, presumably not the gentleman's relish, but that's something for us to speculate about another time. Blaine reaches for a print and he shows Stephen this print that he'd earlier hidden of Diana mounted on a horse holding Swedish and British flags in a blue balloon up in the clouds surrounded by red birds. The text in Swedish has her name, Diana Villiers, repeated in capital letters with points of admiration fore and aft. And Mike, there's this really interesting reflection from Stephen. O'Brien, writing in kind of Stephen's interior monologue, reflects that Stephen usually called her Diana Villiers, that is to say her, her maiden name, her her first married name, in fact, in his own mind, because, as the text says, their marriage aboard a man of war with never a priest in sight had convinced him no more than it had convinced her. And that's, that was quite a surprise, I think. Like you, Ian, I, I was taken by surprise here, too. I mean, I could always see Stephen kind of pinching himself, saying, I can't believe I'm married to Diana Villiers. But it's hard for me to imagine him thinking, you know, we're, we're not really married this entire time. And to me, it's even sadder that Stephen's thinking that Diana didn't believe that she was married to him the entire time. I, I just want to try to take them both by the collar, sit them down and say, what's wrong with you two? You've got to get it together. I don't know about you yeah. two, but I've got way too much invested in this relationship for the two of you to be <laughs> acting and thinking like this. <laughs> Absolutely. Come on. For, for, the, for the sake of the readers. And it's really interesting that I'd, I'd always seen and heard and assumed that he carried on referring to her as Diana Villiers even when they were married. And I didn't associate her keeping the name Villiers in his mind as being the same as 
him doubting the the form or the sincerity of their marriage. I've, I've searched the text, Mike, and up to this point, she's never been named in the text as Diana Maturin. So I don't think it's so right. out of the ordinary for the name Villiers to, to catch him like this. No, no. And- but, it, you know, it's still, you know, Stephen's still a very sensitive soul. He's, he's, he's exposed to these kind of little barbs of reflection and alarm in his, in his soul here. Right. You know, and I, I do think, you know, occasionally in the text we'll see Mrs. Maturin, but, you know, this is in other people, not in Stephen's mind or Diana's, but I always thought of it as kind of his pet name for her. It's, it's kind of the way he came to know her. Yeah, Mike, and Stephen's gaze goes back to this image, this drawing of Diana, and the text says, he considered the image for a while, the careful drawing of the cords enveloping the balloon and holding the basket, the wooden figure and its expressionless face, the frozen theatrical posture, and absurdly enough, there was something of Diana there. She was a splendid rider, and although she would never have sat like that, even on a blue cross between an ass and a mule, nor ever have struck a histrionic pose, the wild improbability, the symbol of a horse, and this figure's total lack of concern did have a real connection with her. And Mike, again, we get Stephen's really touching admiration for her. We get this reflection of her courage and spirit, and we get the horse metaphor as well, which is just his his go-to mental image for Diana, her, her on, a, on a hunting horse. And he goes on to tell Blaine that he'd like to go up in a balloon. And even this is a little bit of a sensitive moment here. Blaine says, I watched Pilat de Rosier and a friend go up. They had two balloons, a small Montgolfier just over the basket and a larger one filled with gas above it. They rose at a fine pace, but at three or four thousand feet, the whole thing took fire. Icarus could not have been more dashed to pieces. And Blaine immediately realises it was the wrong thing to say. He can't think of anything to say which won't make it worse. So he changes the subject and switches over to talking about the after-dinner wine. And Mike, this is yet another bad omen about ballooning. It goes with the Admiral's earlier story that he re- that he told to Stephen. And yet more foreboding and doom, I think, for Stephen and the Diana relationship. Now, you, I think, have found out something about this character, Pilatre de Rosier. Is that right? Right, Rosier, real person, um, uh, died 1785, French chemistry and physics teacher, one of the first pioneers of aviation. Uh, sure enough, kind of like in Blaine's description, you know, he and a partner made the first man-free balloon flight in 1783 in, in a balloon like this, but not quite as complex as the one that Blaine describes. But he dies later when he's trying to cross from France across the English Channel, he and his companion, this time a new one, Pierre Romain, uh, are the first known fatalities in an air crash. It's a combination hot air balloon and hydrogen balloon. And and just as Blaine had described, this you know, got engulfed in flame here. But the that design, that hybrid design is called, even up till today, a rosier balloon because he had done it. So fascinating history, fascinating callback. Um, and... and yeah. You know, it, it makes us think about the kinds of things that we do. He he also, by the way, was the guy who um, the king of France would only let convicts go up early in balloons. And he convinced the king to say, no, 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 you've got to let me go. I want to I go up. And so sure enough, right. And it was all fine that thereafter, all the way up to the Hindenburg, when people finally realized that hydrogen and sources of ignition don't go well together in balloons. Oh, my gosh. Right. 
Oh, gosh. Now, we're still in this conversation between Stephen and Sir Joseph Blaine. Stephen asks Blaine to reach back to an earlier comment he'd made about the absence of a rumour in Sweden being significant. He says, what kind of significance? And Blaine goes on to explain that there's this tension in Sweden. There's the elected crown prince of Sweden, Bernard Dott. He's turned against Napoleon, but he's a Frenchman, and the French have many possible ways to turn him back to their side, and there's political intrigue and foreign agents abounding in Sweden. There are rumours everywhere. So the lack of a rumour is significant. I think what Blaine is saying, this is a very political and intrigue-ridden country, and you would think that you'd be hearing stuff. And the fact that you're not hearing stuff says maybe stuff's not happening. Right. So more hope for Stephen. Yeah, and this is this is good news. You know, we haven't heard uh, any any bad things about Diana, <laughs> and that's significant. Blaine's telling him. Yeah. So Stephen has noticed, and and Blaine has actually kind of confessed to this really pressing interest in money and all things money. And so Stephen asks if he wants him to tell him a story about money and Padine, and Blaine says, by all means. And he tells him that he took Padine to like the best surgeon, tooth surgeon, tooth puller in all of Plymouth. But Padine would not open his mouth for him, wouldn't do anything. This guy is highest rated, you know, Stephen's recommendation. But when they came to London, there's another surgeon. And for him, Padine will do whatever he wants. And Stephen explains to Blaine that the reason is because this surgeon in London is charging more money than Padine has ever seen in his life. And of course, Patty now has more money than he's ever seen in his life uh, because of the, the surprise of success. And Stephen says, and O'Brien writes, the expenditure of such a sum not only confers a certain status upon a man, but must necessarily entail an extraordinary degree of well-being. And boy, uh, isn't <laughs> Stephen and O'Brien a little prescient about the way oh. we spend money nowadays. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Isn't he hanging out this massive hostage to fortune? This is about the seventh or eighth time this chapter that Stephen has said something a little bit smug and a little bit complacent about the combination of his money and his use of laudanum and his kind of his his being. And I think he's trying to say outwardly to the world what he doesn't feel inside himself. But right. we get the flip side of this straight away. Blaine is shocked that Padine himself isn't waiting to walk Stephen home, that Stephen's walking home alone, in other words, and that he's doing this with a diamond in his pocket and says, come on, your insurance company will decline responsibility. They won't pay out for something like that if you're uh, if you're walking home alone. And Stephen says, what insurance? Right. <laughs> what insurance? Ah, the, uh, the, non, the unworldly Stephen. And Blaine is really, really shocked and says, next time... You're going to tell me the surprise is not insured. And Stephen says, oh, yeah, perhaps I should make some arrangements. There is such a thing as maritime insurance. Oh, my. So th th this is really, really funny. And so Joseph says he'll walk Stephen to the corner of Piccadilly where there will be link boys to take him home. And Mike, this, this link boys reference is a nice bit of authenticism as well, isn't it? It is. It's funny. You know, earlier, just a little bit earlier in this chapter, when Stephen first got to Blaine's house, He's describing the front of Blaine's house in this dolphin door knocker, and he and he talks about a curious double link extinguisher. And I kind of thought, no idea what that is. But then once we get back to these link boys, I said, okay, so now we got to find out what this is. So it turns out that before the days of of kind of common street lights, yeah. it's even mentioned with his balloons that some of the places are installing some gas lights now, but. 
And some of the streets are dark. So there would be these boys called link boys that carried around lit torches. And you could essentially hire them or tip them to walk you places. And they would light the way. They also served, as as Blaine indicates here, as a, a bit of protection here. Yeah. And these link extinguishers for the folks who were wealthier, they would have their own servants kind of walking around them with torches. Hmm. When they got back to their house, there was this big kind of large candle snuffer attached to the house where they would put out the torch before they came in. So, um, you know, folks with money had their own link extinguishers. Folks without money would hire these boys who would then, of course, walk away with their torches lit to go pick up another customer. Oh, that's very cool. We've got to get something um, something out on the socials about that. That's a really great find. So they're walking along outside, presumably with the protection of a link boy. And um, Blaine raises once again this hope that we have for Jack here. He says that the comment about Jack engaging a national ship of equal force was not quite so much in the air as it may have appeared to be. And he asks whether Jack might know the harbour in a place called St. Martin's. Stephen says he's surveyed it twice. He's blockaded it for some time. And Blaine says, well, okay, can you stay in town for a week? And Stephen reminds him that they'll see each other at the Royal Society with Reverend Martin on Thursday. And Mike, it's it's really funny. This name of this place, St. Martin's, which is going to be quite important for a chapter or three, this place uh, is fictitious. And I love the fact that when it's fictitious, nobody gives any explanation or colour about where it is. It's just dropped in the text like, oh, St. Martin's? Oh, yeah, sure, I know St. Martin's. Um, Even Tom Horn's excellent cannonade.net website says, I have no clue where St. Martin's is. It's on the coast of France. Patrick O'Brien has given us this beautiful little hand-drawn map. And by the way, Mike, the more fictitious a place is, the more O'Brien is inclined to give us a really detailed map of it. (laughs) And looking at the arrow of the compass rose on this little sketch map, I'm guessing it's probably somewhere on the west, on the Atlantic coast, Brittany or somewhere south of there. But nobody ever says, oh, yes, it's two leagues distant from X or it's just around the corner from Y or you get there by sailing past you know, this other place. It's just like, oh, St. Martin's. Yeah. OK, we know what we're talking about now. So in true O'Brien fashion, you know, he, he just had at the ending of the last paragraph, you know, Stephen's saying, we'll see each other on Thursday at the Royal Society dinner. And of course, next paragraph, at the Royal Society Club dinner, <laughs> yeah, we've got Blaine and Martin talking nonstop, of course, about Beatles and South American Beatles and everything else. And, and they're talking, talking. Later after the dinner, Stephen presents a paper, O'Brien tells us, in his usual low mumble. <laughs> and afterwards, Blaine asked about Padine and, you know, how the surgery went. And Stephen told him, you know, about the operation, that it was really pretty intense, you know, trying to chipping this wisdom tooth, pulling out the pieces, everything, but says that, you know, not to worry, he's treating him with laudanum and that Padine, in, in O'Brien words, displays remarkable fortitude. And I, I can only imagine that he does. So, uh, huh. so Blaine, in turn, kind of, again, pulls Stephen aside and says, as O'Brien writes here, it would do no harm if our friend held himself in readiness to set off for a short voyage at even shorter notice. And, and Blaine says, you know, essentially can't guarantee anything, but he wants Jack to be ready if, you know, what's going on behind the scenes right now turns out to be true. You know, Stephen says, you know, I, I, it's okay if I send him an express, you know, got to get the word to him right away. And 
And Blaine says, yeah, you know, you, know, you can't tell them anything about it, but yeah, tell them to be at the ready. <laughs> well, what's the thing that Jack always says insultingly about the Spanish Navy? He says, they may be great fighters, but they are never, ever ready. And we know that the Royal Navy, and Jack in particular, is always ready. Right. So, Mike, I think I hear hoofbeats outside. I think I hear an express coming. It might be time for us to take a quick break and come back when we check out what's in this express that's just been delivered. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back from break. Hope you've had a chance to catch up with any express messages you've received. Actually, at this point, Jack hasn't quite gotten that yet. He's at Ashgrove Cottage, and he and Sophie are enjoying uh, what O'Brien calls an extra cup of coffee in the breakfast parlor. And and O'Brien tells us that Sophie is, you know, as Sir Joseph had kind of mentioned earlier to Stephen, still one of the loveliest women. You know, it's kind of ever been his pleasure to meet. And O'Brien writes, for although living with a somewhat difficult, boisterous, and over-sanguine husband with little or no sense of business, a husband who might be away for years on end doing his utmost to risk life and limb in far remote seas, and although bearing him three children had taken its toll while his infamous trial and disgrace had withered her bloom, the singular beauty of her form eyes and hair was unaffected, while the intense mental and spiritual activity of keeping their home together in his absence and dealing with sometimes unscrupulous men of business had done away with any hint of insipidity or helplessness in her expression. So I love that we've got, (laughs) you know, Sophie on the one hand, oh, you know, she's so lovely, but O'Brien said, yeah, she's a lot more than that. And, uh, yeah. and o- O'Brien adds that this this recent, what he calls spring tide of gold, all this gold rushing in with these prizes had done wonders for their house, for their property. They, they've opened up all these rooms that they had had shuttered, and it has done wonders for Sophie. Uh, it's great to be back at Ashgrove and, and with yeah. things, you know, doing a little bit better, right, Ian? Yeah, absolutely. The last couple of times we've been here, there's been quite a lot of uncertainty. We were even wondering whether Jack and Sophie might get into it over Jack's dalliance with uh, with Miss Smith over in Halifax. But for Sophie, at least, she's on an even keel and the family are there and there's money coming in and I'm really happy for them. It's really nice to be there. Um, even so, Sophie yeah. knows that despite all the wealth, Jack's not going to be happy unless he's restored to the Navy list. And even though Jack is happy to be with the family and glad to be out from under all his business lawsuit, the text says his appetite for living was very, very much less than it had been. His beautiful stables had regular utilitarian horses. He would no longer hunt. There's no there's no kind of Arabian race horses there. They rarely dined out. Most of Jack's friends were at sea, and he didn't want to see people except those he was obliged to or those who'd shown friendship at the trial. So he's still separating himself from society a little bit. And Mike, I think that's one of the reasons why the first half of this chapter was very clearly in London with Stephen without Jack. 
And the second right. half of the chapter, we're going to be with Jack, which means we're not in London and we're not in amongst society. Yeah. You know, Sophie realizes that Jack is very fragile right now, flayed, uh, you know, O'Brien often calls him, and and is easily kind of hurt or uh, wounded by kind of recalling all this going on to him. And so she's particularly worried about this gift set of plate that we mentioned earlier that's coming from the West Indies merchants to honor Jack. You know, they had talked with Sophie about the inscription, and Sophie had kind of, you know, really pushed him hard not to inscribe things like late of the Royal Navy or formerly his majesty's ship or to continuously refer to, you know, Jack as being a privateer because, you know, she, she knows that this is not going to go well with him, but she doesn't think that they're going to listen. And as they're walking through the garden together, Jack hears this blackbird song and he says out loud that he wishes he could sing like that. And, and Sophie kind of gently reminds him that he sings far better better than that so you know we kind of see jack just like they said you know not fully living into that big skin that we know but the the conversation between them the blackbird everything is silence when we hear the children approaching and and this i i I love this dialogue you know oh oh do come on george you fat ass little slob bear hand bear a hand there can't you called charlotte well i'm coming ain't i and you're to wait for me cried george quite faint in the distance charlotte you're not to roar out like that so close to the house it ain't genteel and besides they'll hear you said fanny in a close reef topsail screech so the joys <laughs> of children who've been raised by lower deck sailors <laughs> instead of the, the the coming nanny and tutor that, that Sophie has. Oh, it's great, isn't it? I love the moment. By the way, Mike, there, there was something about the way this whole passage was written that made me think, I wonder if this was ever meant to be the beginning of the book. Mm. So we get this, this reuse of the reference to Jack being flayed. We get this very nice kind of setting of the scene with Sophie and the children and it's all very bucolic and Ashgrove. And it was almost like, I imagine, maybe O'Brien thought about writing the book straight in at Ashgrove with Jack having already had his prizes and already had the success with the Spartan and that the book was going to start at this point. But then he wrote the first three chapters having rethought where he was going to be in the story. There was just something about the the tone of the writing here that sounded like the opening chapter of a book. I don't know. Anyway. Nice. Yeah. Um, the kids are all holding hands together and they're shouting, it's come, it's come. And Killick confirms the arrival of a covered cart with two coves with blunderbusses and a driver. But there was a gent who was going to make a speech who it turns out had gotten drunk and had to be left behind. There are crates unloaded and brought inside. And my, this is the service of plate that the West Indian merchants have granted to Jack. It was mentioned just in passing a few paragraphs ago, but now we get this really nice moment of this prize being opened up and shared around the family. Jack reaches in and pulls out the prize item, a huge ornate soup tureen. He hands it to Sophie and she reads the inscription. And Mike, this is a really, oh, this is a really nice payoff moment here because the inscription is perfect. It says, to the most eminently distinguished naval commander, John Aubrey Esquire, this service is offered by the Association of West Indian Merchants in gratitude for his unfailing support and protection of the country's trade, its life's blood, in all latitudes and in both wars, and in particular acknowledgement 
of his brilliant capture of that most determined and rapacious private man of war, the Spartan, the largest of its class. And the text says that there was this little Latin motto. Beneath the piece stood the words Debellare Superbos with two lions rampant pointing at them from either side. And this is this is perfectly turned. All of the preparations and the communication back and forth with Sophie had paid off. Well done, Sophie. There's not an ounce of offense here to be taken for Jack, and it's a really nice moment. It really is a great moment. And and O'Brien, I think, underscores for us how wonderful the moment is because he's saying that that even Mrs. Williams congratulates Jack with real cordiality. You know, huh. we, we never see that. And and it only lasts for a minute, but it's great to see her taking his hand because she's she's struck by this too. And and of course she absolutely believes of trade and its lifeblood. She's, you know, she is a mercenary one. And she's lifting this almost 10 pound silver tureine and and of course, she's apoplectic about the kids reaching in and, and grabbing this stuff and everything. But but Jack has the kids take turns unpacking. Each child is is pulling out an item, calling out the names, and all these you know many many pieces of this huge silver set. And and you know the text says that Killick is looking almost imbecilic, you know, staring at this stuff because he loves polishing silver so much that he's almost. You know, Jack, a number of number of books ago, had gotten another kind of service, uh, a plate yeah. and, you know, a, a silver service set. And it said, you know, Brian tells us that Killick polished that almost down to foil with his heavy handedness <laughs> now. So, And there's this great gesture as they've unpacked all these things. Jack stops and picks up a silver spoon and gives one to each child. So... You know, I, I want to get past our, our kind of reference nowadays that they're going to grow up with a silver spoon in their mouths. I think this <laughs> is kind of, you know, there's there's this contrast between Mrs. Williams is like, now we got to wash all this stuff in hot water, get rid of the kids' dirty hands. And Jack's saying, no, no, no. You know, he's just so taken with the kids here. And he says, you know, each of you get your own spoon. Um, now, they want to know what that inscription means. And Sophie says, well, they'll just have to wait for Dr. Maturin or their new governess, Miss O'Mara, to translate this Latin for them. All she knows is that it's Latin. Ian, maybe maybe you can help us out, because as it turns out in the text, neither Dr. Matron or Miss O'Mara come back to this. No, t- typical O'Brien, the, lef- the reference is just left hanging there. Um, Debellare superbos means subdue the proud or tame the proud. It comes from Virgil's Aeneid, which is one of O'Brien's signature texts. It comes from a scene in the Aeneid where Anchises, the dead father of Aeneas, whom Aeneas travels to find in the underworld, at the turning point of the poem talks about Roman greatness rather than the restoration of Troy. So it's a bit of a cautionary tale for future Roman leaders. And it's got classic O'Brien anti-authoritarian libertarianism in in it. The full section says, you, O Roman, govern the nations with your power. Remember this. These will be your arts to impose the ways of peace to show mercy to the conquered and to subdue the proud, de bellare superbos. So really nice reference there. Jack has helped to subdue the proud Spartan. And we're hoping that that's a nod towards maybe subduing the folks who've engineered Jack's removal from the Navy list. So this is a nice, a nice thought to dwell on here for a minute. Ah, wonderful. Well, we finally get the moment as, as we were waiting there on break 
the express arrives for Jack. And, and uh, you know, George runs in to say that the message and the messenger are covered in blood because this rider has tumbled from his horse. And, and Mrs. Williams takes that as an absolute bad omen and is certain that this message is going to announce the failure of Jack's bank. <laughs> Jack is kind of tuning all this out, opening this express, this kind of, you know, pre, uh, pre-telegram day, telegram kind of thing, the rider. And um, looks at it, thinks to himself, you know, I, I wouldn't be worried if Tom Pullings was supervising the surprises fitting out for C, but it's it's Davidge and West, and I don't know them quite as well. Yeah. So he announces to Sophie, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be headed to see the ship tomorrow rather than waiting a few more days. Because he's thinking to himself, you know, Stephen would not have sent this as an express if there wasn't a possibility of action at the end of this short voyage that he's telling Jack to be prepared for. And uh, Jack kind of turning back to the kids here in the midst of this pause suggests that the kids now take all the silver and lay it out in the dining room as if they were about to have a banquet. And, you know, they've, they've gotten about halfway through this when a chase and four arrives outside. <gasps> dum, 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 dum. Who is it? It, Stephen and Padine. And it, we almost get it taken for granted, by the way, Mike, that the laying out the plate in the dining room was almost like an act of play for Jack. He's going, well, let's, let's pretend we're going to have a banquet and put it all out on the table. Right. And just at the moment that they're having a play banquet, guess what? We have the favorite guest of honor for a banquet arriving. It's Stephen and he's got Padine with him. Jack greets them both warmly, saying that they were just about to have a banquet. So, hey, why not? Stephen and Sophie kiss because remember Stephen and Sophie have got this really close um, brotherly sisterly relationship and they haven't spent much time together in the last few books and the Mm -hmm. kids of course show off their spoons as kids do Uh, Stephen's glad that he hadn't missed Jack he was afraid that Jack might have up sticks and headed to Shelmiston Uh, but Jack says no 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 I only got this express a few minutes ago and Stephen who's turned a little bit miserly in his riches says, I'm not very happy. I, spent, I sent it two days ago from London. Uh, one pound, 16 shillings and eight pence in pure loss besides half a crown for the boy. And uh, oh, he's not very happy with this at all. At Jack's request then, Sophie agrees to get a meal together for everyone to eat off this brilliant blazing service of silver plate. Yeah. So they're, they're inside and they're talking Jack and Stephen. And Jack notes that Penny looks like he's been to the wars and, and asks, you know, what, what happened in this operation? And Stephen tells him about the surgery, but says that the bumps and bruises that Jack's spotting now were from this huge fight that Padine had with these three men who had made fun of his bandage. You know, they'd made some comment, this big bandage wrapped around his head, you know, was your father an ass or a rabbit? Well, Padine hadn't taken it well. He broke one man's leg, threw another into this large kind of kitchen fireplace and held him there into the fire. He chased another one out the door, ran down into the park, and the guy jumped in the lake. And the only reason Padine didn't go in after him was because he was wearing his new clothes. So, you know, Jack observes as only Jack can do. It will not do to meddle with him. He's the kind of a lamb that lies down with the lion in wolf's clothing. I saw him board the Spartan like a gooden. So, you know, <laughs> nothing like a good Aubreyism to get right to the point. No, no, it's a good life lesson as well. I think don't don't mess 
with an, an autistic laudanum addicted six foot five <laughs> guy weighing 250 pounds who's just had a tooth out like that's not a day right <laughs> not a day that's going to turn out well for you huh. so Stephen takes jack aside and tells him of the possibility of a naval action against a french ship and it's oh that's Jack is overwhelmed. I think we're overwhelmed on Jack's behalf as well. He says, meaning absolute truth, that he, Jack, would give his right arm for that. And Stephen says, whoa, 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 don't don't tempt fate. There's a new frigate. It's a French frigate. She has 30 guns. She's called, wait for it, the Diane. (laughs) And Mike, oh, the naming of ships here. Surely, surely not an accident. Diana, Diane. Where's the connection here? Jack's first ship was called the Sophie. What's it with the ship's name and love interest connections? Oh. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, I think he's, he's toying with us a little bit. And meanwhile, we learn that the Diane herself has been built by the French to head for Chile and Peru, just like the surprise. So she's the pretty much direct enemy, the direct antagonist of the surprise. She and her more or less French representatives will sail from St. Martin's on the night of the 13th at the dark of the moon. And by the way, Mike, it's important to the story that we learn that it's the night of the 13th and it's the dark of the moon because there's a fair bit of time to go. And we'll see in the next chapter or two how that time is going to get taken up. But there's this time, uh, two or three weeks hence, when the Diane is going to sail from St. Martin's, which is where she is in the meantime, the departure is timed so that the British Navy at that time will only have on station the Tartarus, the decrepit Dolphin, and nothing else. There's the, the other ships are needed elsewhere. There'll be a store ship, the Camel. There might be another vessel hanging around to make the squadron look better. But the enemy is aware of the plan. And Stephen says it occurred to his friend, Sir Joseph, we mean, we think he means, that if surprise intervened, everyone could benefit. So there's all kinds of favorable omens here. We've got classic Stephen and Jack, good intelligence about timing and the movements of the enemy. Tartarus, as we might all remember, is commanded by Babington, of course, and he's a he's an old friend, and this is a good omen. By the way, we want to say thank you to Kate Bunting of The Gun Room, who got in touch with us to say, had we noticed that Fanny Ray calling Babington Charles by accident, she explained it away as having been to do with him being dressed as the young pretender at a ball. Kate thinks, and I think she's probably right, that actually if you go all the way back to the previous book, O'Brien had accidentally called Babington Charles on a few occasions in the text, and perhaps that was O'Brien's comical way of fixing the fact that he'd forgotten Babington's real first name. Um, William Mowat is on at least one occasion not called William as well. So thank you to Kate for getting in touch. Thank you to all the members of the gun room who are listening. Thank you to anybody mm-hmm. who ever gets in touch on facebook.com forward slash lovers hole or on twitter at whole lovers we love to hear your thoughts thank you kate for that or by plain old email as well or, or by plain old email as well <laughs> yeah, right so mike this is this is really good we've got a whole stack of positive vibes building up here yes yeah you know jack is certainly positive he's delighted kind of over the moon and he and immediately Ask Stephen, you know, can I go tell Sophie? And Stephen says, absolutely not. You, know, you don't tell anyone until we're well underway. And he, he uses five or six nautical terms, none of which apply. But Stephen has agreed, he explains to Jack, he's agreed on Jack's behalf 
And the Crown has essentially hired the surprise here. And they've provided a letter from the Admiralty, which basically they can show to any naval officer. And it says, you know, the surprise has been hired. She's on a mission from government. They cannot look at the surprise's instructions. They cannot detain the surprise. And they are to give the surprise any assistance that Jack says he needs to carry out his instructions, which, by the way, they can't see again. So, you know, this is this is kind of an amazing letter here, right? Yeah, this is this is a classic get out of jail free card. And Mike, right. Jack was really impressed right. to see who'd signed the document. We have Melville, we have two Lords of the Admiralty, um, signed at their command by the Black Thief Croker. So who who was Croker? And I wonder why we might have called him a black thief. Well, you know, it's fascinating. I, I wondered exactly the same thing, Ian. We know Melville, we know the Lords. And why in the world does Stephen throw in this black thief, Croker? Croker actually is a real person. He became Secretary of the Admiralty in 1809, held that position for more than 20 years. Now, I kept wondering, why the black thief? Why the black thief here? Now, I do know that in 1816, he reduced the size of the Royal Navy and over a thousand ships were decommissioned and placed in the reserve fleet or laid up in ordinary, at, you know, various British naval bases. And I'm sure this would not set well with a with a Stephen or a, particularly with a Jack. But there were also some other irregularities along the way there. And, and apparently <laughs> he was quite the guy to do whatever he pleased, whenever he pleased. So but this again, this this phrase black thief, Ian, you did a little research on that. What what have we learned about that? So I think this is more of Patrick O'Brien's um, fanciful, fictitious Irishisms. The Black Thief of Sloan is a character in an Irish fairy tale. You can look it up online, The Black Thief and the Knight of the Glen. And the phrase is used a lot by Stephen as an epithet. It, several times in the canon, Stephen calls somebody a black thief if they have bad character or bad reputation. And the only other person ever to use the phrase in the canon is Padine, who, of course, is an Irish speaker as well. So I think this is just a general purpose epithet for a baddie. Well, that makes me feel much better. I was trying to locate something that made him a black thief. So we know that that's just a good regular term. Well, there's this phenomenal paper, which has been signed by these great people and the black thief. So how's Jack feeling about this paper? Well, he regards it as something like a holy object and he, he tears up here. And we've had this reaction from Stephen before. He knows, he says, how apt the English were to display embarrassing emotion and starts telling him in a harsh voice about the very competent commander and crew of the Diane. So Stephen wants to get past this, but Jack is really, really emotionally set back having only just a few paragraphs ago learned that he might be able to get restitution if he can defeat uh, a national ship. Now, in, in only the same chapter, he's got the intelligence and the documentary power to let him do exactly that. He knows that he might be getting close to having some hope again. Yeah. Stephen, as we say, kind of taps this down a little bit with stories about how great the sailors are and how great the gunners are on the Diane. He notices that there will be civilians on board the Diane with papers. We guess... They'll be intelligence related, and it would be a great stroke to seize them intact. And Stephen asks Jack if there's a map or a chart. And Jack says, well, I made my own survey back in uh, 1797, and they go back to the house to review it. Jack knows the area, he says, well enough to go in without a pilot. And O'Brien, as we've said before about a fictitious place, provides a drawing for us. 
So here you go. Maybe, listeners, you've got the map in front of you because you've got the Kindle edition or you've got the uh, paper edition open in front of you. But let me tell you what O'Brien says about this harbour of St. Martin's. The chart showed a deep, narrow harbour, less than a quarter of a mile wide at its mouth and two miles deep, with a six-gun battery at the bottom of it, the entrance narrowed by a breakwater. Both shores were fairly steep too, but that on the southern side, which ran out in a bold headland carrying a lighthouse, was much higher except at its junction with the mainland, where the low isthmus was guarded by a considerable fortification. And I think Jack, by the way, goes on to mention that the fortification was thrown up as a result of Jack and some guys in, earlier in Jack's career having gone ashore there and caused a bit of a, a bit of a riot. The town was spread over most of the headland east of the lighthouse and along the other side of the port. The men of war lay along a fine stone quay on the south side of the harbour. The merchantmen were generally, but not always, on the other side, while the small craft and fishing boats kept to the bottom. The town might have four or five thousand people, as well as the garrison, and there were three churches, and of course, the quite well-known shipbuilding yards and stores and mike this 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 almost sounds like the carbon copy of a kind of harbor that jack likes to go and do stuff in this sounds a little bit like the description of port mahon when he went to rescue stephen this sounds a lot like the descriptions of other harbors where jack has gone in on a cutting out expedition this screams cutting out mission to me well it's it's interesting it, it screams cutting out but at this point you know jack's telling stephen as, as they look at this land, that he's thinking about the Diane and, and how she needs to kind of maneuver to get out of this because there's some sandbanks right there. And the fact that she, you know, she doesn't want to go north and run into the kind of the bigger British fleet, but she's thinking about the course that she'll have to take. Jack says to Stephen, I know exactly where we darken our lanterns and wait for her to come out at Cape Bowhead, which is on this map. And, you know, Stephen memorizes the map. Jack puts it away. And fascinatingly, while he's been thinking about this action, he's really dwelling on how pleased he is by the children's reaction to the silver plate. Yeah. And, and it's not just reacting to silver, but it's they're reacting to their opinion of him. You know, it's his actions that brought this in. And he realizes that their opinion of him is far more important than he ever could have realized without experiencing it. And, and he's thinking to himself, you know, he's not sure how much the children know about kind of what has happened to him recently. But thinking about this and the kid's reaction is kind of really reinforcing in his mind that getting restored to the Navy list and, and how that might impact you know, the, the growing children's perception of him alone, that alone is well worth his right arm. Oh, it's a really lovely moment as well. That it's it's a nice thing to think about as you as your kids grow up, you start to realize that you appreciate their positive view of you. At least I think that's my that's my thought on this. And earlier in the previous book, Jack thought he had lost, but then he had partially regained in the pillory scene the esteem of his naval colleagues. He knows for sure that he sacrificed the esteem of his father. Him and his father hadn't been great, but now him and his father are, are light years apart. It's great that he's seems to have a solid relationship again with Sophie. And it's really lovely that as his children are getting older, he can appreciate their view of him. So all, all of this nice 
benign introspection is broken by none other than Killick. Killick opens the door in his ceremonial coat and announces, Whittles is up, sir, if you please. And O'Brien winds up the chapter with this really interesting observation from the point of view of Mrs. Williams. He says, Mrs. Williams was not gifted with any very high degree of perception, but she was as startled as her daughter when they saw Jack follow Stephen in. And she whispered, If you can't get Killick to keep the decanters well away from Mr. Aubrey, I am afraid we shall have to leave the gentleman very early in the meal. (laughs) So I think she sees the piratical gleam in Jack's eye. I think she sees that a few bottles are going to get sent south in this next dinner and that some singing might be called for shortly. (laughs) Now, we know that Jack isn't drunk at the moment and maybe it's just that his mind is swimming with the possibility that he might be restored to the list. But (laughs) it's a great note to end on, right? Oh, it is. It absolutely is. Boy, as you said earlier, we're now, we're we're kind of into a story arc here, right? Yeah. We, We have a mission for the surprise and we have a possible restoration to the list for Jack. Well, how about Stephen? Yeah, Stephen, he's got plans now. He's going to see Diana in Sweden, taking the Blue Peter with him. I mean, this is all sorts of possibilities, I would think, here. There could be battles, French agents, affairs of the heart ahead. I don't know, Mike. It sounds like maybe we should turn over another chapter. What do you say next week to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. to make that deal you know it's the blue peter and a or or a dog on, on a ship, right oh my all right we can't do that as an outtake every week Marzi. <laughs>